Now we're continuing with our introduction to the subject of origins as we are going to deal with uh, that, that in a broad sense. Next Sunday, Stacy will be uh, again teaching and, and time, kind of taking this in a new direction. I'll say more about that at the end this morning. Uh, but yet, last Sunday, I began introducing this, really trying to lay out what our choices are. Uh, the fact that with evolution and creation, we're essentially given what I call exclusive alternatives. It's one or the other. Now, there are various iterations of each of those, but nevertheless, those are, at the end of the day, what we're left with. And so we want to, I want to continue that and talk a little bit more about the philosophical implications. Again, the ideas have consequences aspect of this. It matters uh, what we believe regarding where we came from. And it has changed the world. Which worldview dominates will answer really almost every question uh, is impacted by this. It has to do with our view of life, purpose, uh, law, education, science. All those things are impacted by how we answer these fundamental questions. So everything is at stake. I want to specifically talk, uh, begin just taking up where I left off and talk about three uh, men who have probably been the most influential uh, since the mid-19th century, and that is Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud, and Karl Marx. It's important to remember that Darwin and materialistic philosophy did not just stop with biology, did not just stop with the natural sciences. It quickly spilled over into the studies of sociology, psychology, education, history, political theory. Most noted among those promoting the Darwinian view, uh, carrying them out in ways that impacted us and still impact us, as I mentioned, were Sigmund Freud and Karl Marx. The suffering that these two have caused, uh, caused the entire world, is immeasurable and continues today. In fact, much of our modern problems can be traced to these men and their ideas. Dale Alquist, commenting on G.K. Chesterton's observation about Darwin, Marx, and Freud, said, The basic cause of all the problems in in modern education can be summarized in three words. Darwin, Marx, and Freud. The theories of these three men have pervaded all modern thought. Their ideas are much alike in that they are narrow, materialistic, fatalistic, and utterly anti-Christian. Their influence has been felt far beyond their limited fields. Darwin's ideas have contributed to a blind belief in progress. And I'm going to be stringing together a whole bunch of quotes today uh, just because uh, people have thought a lot about this, written about this, and said it so well. G.K. Chesterton said each of them, referring to these three men, took not so much a half-truth as a hundredth part of a truth and then offered it not merely as something but as everything. Having never done anything except split hairs, each of them hangs the whole world on a single hair, whether it be biology, economics, or psychology. It is yet another mark of this sort of agnostic 
that he is ready to assert his absolute knowledge of everything to the verge of of a contradiction in terms. Just as he will always try to write a history of prehistoric man, so he will always struggle to be conscious of his own unconsciousness. Just as it is the latest fad to prove that everything is sexual, so it was the latest fad to prove that everything was economic. So you had Freud and then Marx. The Marxist notion, called the materialistic theory of history, had the same sort of stupid self-confidence in its very insufficient materialism. As the one fad conceives everything about the bird to be connected with mating, so the other conceived everything connected with it to consist of catching worms. These fads fade very fast, and it may seem hardly worthwhile to prick bubbles that will burst of themselves. Nevertheless, there is one consideration that makes it worthwhile. It It is a character of all these manias that they cannot really convince the mind, but they, do, but they do cloud it. Above all, they do darken it. All these tremendous and rather temporary discoveries have had the singular fascination that they were not merely degrading, but were also depressing. Each in turn leaves no trace on the true and serious conclusions of the world. But each in turn may leave a very deep and may leave very deep and disastrous wounds and dislocations in the mentality of the individual man. Now I know that was a long and intricate quote, but in essence what he's saying is these guys I, I like the image of the Wizard of Oz, the man behind the curtain, the little man behind the curtain. There's a lot of smoke and a lot of brouhaha and a lot of uh, a bigness projected in regard to the assertions of these theories. But when we take a look at them, it turns out uh, that it is the little man behind the curtain in order to change the metaphor the emperor's new clothes. There's not much there. Everything is built on this assertion about prehistoric man and about things that cannot be known, even by, by their own standards, in the sense of no one was there, no one saw this. It is all speculation and strong assertion. And we're being asked to build our lives and the world. And at the end of the day, what Chesterton says is uh, it ends up really being destructive of the individual man. Turns out you are worthless, really. You really have no value in this cosmic meat grinder. Dale Aquas commented on Freud's impact on society, and he said, instead of finding forgiveness for our sins, sins that we committed through our own fault, we get the most amazing psychobabble, wrapped in the mantle of science, which explains that our sins are not sins, and whatever it was we did, it wasn't our fault. It was our parents' fault, it was our teachers' fault, or simply nature's fault. The evil perpetuated by this sort of counseling is twofold. We become less responsible for our sinful actions even while we long for a forgiveness that never comes. It is the marriage of Freud and Darwin, of one pseudoscience to another. 
Marx and Freud, he continues, each of whom rejected Christianity, gave us theories that have been used to promote some of history's most unnatural and degrading attacks against human dignity. If we want to rescue education in our society, we can start by kicking these three bad boys out of school and letting God back in. We need to take away the state's power and give it back to the parents. And we need to get rid of the, of the fads and fashions in education and start teaching the permanent things. As Chesterton, as Chesterton says, teach to the young men men's enduring truths and let the learned amuse themselves with their passing errors. He continues, the basic cause of all the problems in modern education then can be summarized, as he said, Darwin, Marx, and Freud. They have also served as the justification for cutthroat capitalism and the survival of the fittest mentality in our commercial and political relations. Marx's ideas have plunged half the world into darkness for most of the last century. But in the other half, in the other half of the world, they have served as the justification for the extended growth of the state and the loss of the authority of the family and the centrality of the home, and Freud's ideas have led to an overemphasis on sex and have served as the justification for the normalizing of the abnormal and the pervasive decline in morality. The academic community's utter sellout to these three figures has elevated science, economics, and psychology above religion. In fact, all of these three have been involved, invoked to explain, explain away religion. Chesterton says that the primary public duty before us today is, quote, not to educate the uneducated, but to uneducate the educated. We could start this process, the process of bringing common sense back to education by tossing out Darwin, Marx, and Freud and all their minions are studying them solely for the purpose of finding out what the enemy is up to. And I, I recall that when I was in college and deciding what to major in, uh, and I didn't have a lot of choices in a small college. It was a branch of Texas A&M. So I decided self-consciously to major in psychology. Not because I believed uh, in psychology, but because, as he said, I want to understand what the enemy's up to. And I remember I wrote a paper in college, and I was older when I went back to school, and I think I did this respectfully, but I wrote a, a, a paper and turned it in in which essentially I said that experimental psych uh, is a useful thing for us to do. We should study how people think and how they react to various circumstances and situations. There's a lot of value there, uh, a lot of value for counseling, a lot of value in helping people. Uh, so the, the problem is in clinical psychology, when the theories, when the Freudian theories and Carl Jung and, and others take this up with an evolutionary view of man, a low view of man. And the, the, the uh, therapies and so forth become endless and ridiculous. Foolish, silly, if you really step back and look at some of them. And uh, so I wrote a paper basically at the end of the day um, debunking clinical psych. I turned it into my professor, who I didn't really know that well. It was a large class. 
And about three days later, I was at the university walking down the hall, and I saw him. We were walking toward each other, and he stopped, and he pointed. He said, I need to see you in my office. Well, I guess I'm not going to be finishing college. (laughs) Um, So I went to his office, and he introduced himself. First time we'd really talked personally. He said, have a seat. And he reached down in his bottom drawer, pulled it out, and pulled out my papers. And he held I couldn't see what was on it. I, I was bracing for the worst. And he finally, he, he handed it to me. And I had an A. An A plus. He said, I hope you don't mind. I copied this. And I gave it to everyone in our department. He said, you're right. We don't have anything but voodoo. He visited the church the next week, just out of curiosity, I think. Um, now, I tell that story because uh, we need to understand how serious these ideas are. We're not playing around here, and I think oftentimes the church, because we're ignorant of the power of ideas, the power of the gospel, and the power of false ideas are similar in that they change people's lives. They point us in a certain direction. You cannot spend all the 100 plus years teaching children that there is no God, that they are the product of ages and ages of chance upon atoms and molecules, and that when they die, it's over. You cannot teach that for 150 years plus and not get some fruit from that. And we are living in the world that has uh, the fruit of those ideas that are now being born. With 54 million slaughtered babies. All in the name of doing good. Calling evil good. We see the whole sexual world turned upside down. You can thank Sigmund Freud and Darwin for that. Ideas have consequences. And if we don't, we, we, we can deal with the symptoms, but if we don't change the ideas, we will never solve the problem. So you got the idea that Darwin is not, it's not limited to Darwin. We could go to other fields. Sociology, I say education, you got John Dewey, um, you got John Stuart Mills in sociology. And see, here's the deal. If, if evolution is at work, and there's some notion of evolutionary progress, which is a myth, where do you get progress in evolution? Progress to what? You know, if you just took off driving and called me tonight and I said, how's it going? Are you, are you making progress? What's the obvious question that has to be answered before you can answer that question? Where are you going? Just going is not, there's no way to measure progress, but what's happened is this notion that we have evolution is always moving up, right? It's never moving down. It's always getting better. Somehow, it's getting better. Progress toward what? And so, those questions don't get answered. And at the end of the day, we all know, personally, that that's an empty sense. We've had the sadness here recently of a few funerals of loved ones, family members. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Jesus, Jesus Christ. 
If evolution is true, the answer is, I have none. I have no comfort in life or death. Because it doesn't mean anything. All is at stake here. So, we, we talked about exclusive alternatives that we have to, we have either creation uh, or, or evolution. We have either the supernatural or the natural explanation of, how, of where we came from. And so let's set against Darwin the, uh, the idea that creation was supernatural. Remember, we're dealing with the exclusive alternatives. So in opposition to all efforts to explain the origin of the world in terms of purely natural processes, the Bible states that God created all things supernaturally, outside of the natural, above the natural. In other words, the world came into being in a way that was entirely different from anything that may be observed in the present universe. Today, absolutely nothing is being created directly apart from pre-existent materials. Scientists express this basic truth in terms of the first law of thermodynamics. That is, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Fundamental creation is no longer being accomplished as the Bible clearly states. We read in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, that thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So there's a punctuation mark, a conclusion to that created work. God's work of preservation keeps the universe in existence. Hebrews 1.3, upholding all things, maintaining all things by the word of his power. His work of providence directs the universe toward glorious goals. We read in Colossians 1.20, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. His work of creation, as far as the present universe is concerned, though, is completed. So the point is that the ongoing process looks different than the beginning. Thus, when God created the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, he did so without the use of any pre-existent materials whatsoever. In one moment, there was no physical substance anywhere. In the next moment, the heavens and the earth sprang into existence. How could this be? Well, I admit it's a mystery, but you see, either side of this equation have the same problem. You know, if you're dealing with the Big Bang, that only removes the problem by one. Um, where did the Big Bang come from? What was that? Where did it start? The problem is we're dealing with eternal things. If God is indeed infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. If that's true, then creating the universe is no problem. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But if that's true, if in fact God exists, the God of the Bible exists, then the creation of the universe is easy for him. Theologians have called this create, uh, 
uh, creation ex nihilo, that is to create out of nothing. This expression is helpful if we understand it to mean that the physical entities were created out of the non-physical resources of God's omnipotence. And I think this does get to the heart of what later Stacy will be talking about, uh, and it's popular right now as intelligent design. In other words, it requires information to create. How do you create a story? You know, you use words, you use ink, you use a typewriter, you use all kinds of mediums to communicate what? Ideas, thoughts, information. Is, is, so you create using information, and you're the creator, and you either build something or write something, have an idea. Uh, we are imitating God in that. So God himself speaks the world into existence. The world becomes his palette. His, the universe is his medium in which he communicates uh, and, and illustrates his own thoughts. So technically, the expression is applicable only to the creation of inorganic substances, for God did not, did not employ previously created inorganic materials in forming the bodies of living things. Nevertheless, even in this case, creation was strictly supernatural. So in some cases, God creates out of nothing, and in some cases, he takes some of the things he created and uses them to create other things. But in both cases, supernatural. The fact that creation was supernatural means, among other things, that it can be grasped by the human mind only through the channel of special revelation. Again, we weren't there. We didn't see it happen. We can't test this. It only happened once. And remember, almost everything you know, or that you think you know, you know because somebody told you. Somebody you trusted. Somebody who knows more than you. Somebody who's willing to tell you. God alone can tell us how the world began. Because no man was there to see it being created, and even if a human observer had been present, he could not have understood fully what he saw apart from God's own interpretation. Job 38, 3-4. Now gird up your loins like a man, said God, and I will ask you and, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. However, our difficulty in grasping the doctrine of creation is not due so much to the fact that we are finite as to the fact that we are sinful. 1 Corinthians 2.14 For a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. There are few doctrines of the Bible that seem more foolish to the natural man than, than that of supernatural creation because such events are not happening today. I can't see it happening. And so if I can't see it happening, and I am, after all, the judge of all things... I am God, and I'll determine what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And if I can't see it and touch it, then it doesn't exist. But creation is most definitely one of the supremely important things of the Spirit of God, for without it, the Scriptures and Christianity, of course, would fall to pieces. One such myth, we believe, is that God did not create the world supernaturally, but employed natural processes by His providence through vast periods of time. And so... Uh, we get what's called theistic evolution. Well, there's a God, and he kind of got the ball rolling, but it still took billions of years. But it is a myth, not simply because it contradicts Scripture, but because it contradicts the observable processes of the universe. 
In recent years, remarkable testimony from the pens of highly respected scientists who, who recognize that the concept of that the evolution concept in its broader aspects rests upon a vanishing foundation. And so I want to give a couple of quotes here. Uh, G.A. Kirkuten of the Department of Physiology and Biochemistry at the University of Southampton, for example, notes that evolutionists often write as though they, quote, have had their view by some sort of revelation. In spite of many gaps and failures in their system, he says, it is, quote, taken on trust by a, quote, blind acceptance and a, quote, closing of the eyes to many important facts, thus revealing a, quote, arrogant rather than a truly scientific spirit. Attempts to bridge the gap between invertebrates and vertebrates, for example, have resulted in, quote, science fiction rather than discovery. And the possibility that life first began spontaneously is a, quote, matter of faith on the part of the biologist. In his introduction to Darwin's The Origin of Species, in uh, W.R. Thompson points this out. He says, modern Darwinian paleontologists are obliged, just like their predecessors and like Darwin, to water down the facts with subsidiary hypotheses, which however plausible, are in the nature of things unverifiable. And the reader is left with the feeling that if the data do not support the theory, they really ought to. In other words, I don't have, I can't find the data to support the facts, but man, they really should support my theory. This situation, he says, where scientific men rally to the defense of a doctrine they are unable to define scientifically much less demonstrate with scientific rigor, attempting to maintain its credit with the public by the suppression of criticism and the elimination of difficulties is abnormal and undesirable in science. Several years ago, Richard Goldsmith, a leading geneticist, stated, the incessant repetition of this unproved claim, that is, of micro-mutational evolution, glossing lightly over the difficulties and the assumption of an arrogant attitude toward those who are not easily swayed by fashions of science are considered to afford scientific proof of the doctrine. And so the general theory of evolution, therefore, is an anti-theistic faith has been increasingly contradicted by the realities of empirical science during the past century. Christians who accept the clear testimony of Scripture concerning the supernatural character of the original creation are confident, we should be confident, that true science, we're not afraid of science, true science, we believe, look, the facts do speak for themselves, but they also have to be interpreted. What the heavens do declare the glory of God. They reveal his invisible attributes. But that doesn't mean we always receive them or see them. We have, uh, men have prejudices against God. And if you say up front, my theory of the, of the world, my theory of everything, is that no matter, I can't answer, I don't know where we came from, I don't know how we got here, I don't know why we're here, and I don't know where we're going, but the one answer that's excluded is God. That's the one answer that is not acceptable. It is not scientific, 
it can't be proven in a scientific way, and therefore it's off the table. And so the facts are frequently suppressed and misinterpreted by evolutionists, and we're left on this in this dilemma. The answer is here, but it's unacceptable. And so now all the imagine the one answer to the math problem, the right one, is the one that's excluded. Let's say the right answer is 54. But that one's excluded. Now keep working the problem. Keep trying to solve the problem. All the other numbers are available, but that one. Well, you're going to be there a while. The creation of the astronomical universe was not only ex nihilo, that is, from no previously existing matter, as stated in Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible, but was also, for this very reason, instantaneous. God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Now, we create, right? We have an idea, and we go work on it and build it. Sam does this occasionally, or like, what, 24 hours a day? Um, It takes him some time. One of the things he would like to do is be faster. Um, God's very fast. Time's not an issue here. Okay, so when he creates, it's instantaneous. That's part of what distinguishes the creator from the creature. We imitate God in a, in a, in a baby sort of way. We create or recreate, but we do it slowly. God does it immediately, not immediately, not with a mediator. He doesn't have to go get things and build them and assemble them and and wait for the glue to dry and all that kind of stuff. Okay, he, he just does it. He's the creator. The origin of the universe, mass and energy, and the various force fields, such as gravitation, could not, therefore, have been spontaneous or self-acting. The evolutionary concept of a gradual buildup of heavier and heavier elements throughout billions of years is clearly excluded by the pronouncements of Scripture. So we're back to that choice. Either, either the Bible's true or it's a lie. In the first place, the immediate effect of God's creative word is emphatically stated in the Psalms. Psalm 33 and Psalm 148. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. There is certainly no thought here of gradual development or age-long, step-by-step fulfillment of God's command. In fact, it is quite impossible to imagine any time interval in the transition from absolute non-existence to existence. Similarly, as I said, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So just, turn, he turned on the lights. Except it was even faster than that. So spectacular is this particular creation event that the New Testament compares it to the suddenness and supernaturalness of our spiritual conversion. For God, for God who said, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 5, 17, 
For God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Also, God is able to raise suddenly the physical dead because he is God who calls into being that which does not exist. Romans 4.17 It may be confidently asserted that the idea of sudden appearance dominates the entire creation account. We can go through many passages in Genesis and see that it's instantaneous. But there is absolutely nothing in empirical science that prevents the living God who sustains the observable and measurable processes of empirical science in his hand, moment by moment, from changing his methods from time to time to accomplish his eternal purposes for men. From a biblical perspective, the evidence is overwhelming that God's creative and redemptive programs are characterized by sudden and supernatural initiatory events. God acts. It's an act of God, not a process. Sanctification is a process. The Spirit works in us. Justification is an act. God declares us not guilty. Instantaneous in Christ. One of my favorite passages from the first chapter of G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man, which in my view... I would just say it's certainly my favorite. I think it's one of the best books and arguments against evolution. C.S. Lewis credits the book Everlasting Man as being the instrument God used for his conversion to Christ. So I want to read, this is just in the very first opening chapter. The first half of the book deals with how man is not like the other animals. Man is an animal in one sense. He's biological uh, like other animals. He has a connection to animals, but he is unique and very distinct from animals. And he deals with that in the first half of the book. And then the second half, he talks about Christ. Christ was a man, but not like every other man. He's the God-man. So here we are in chapter 1, and he's dealing with evolution. Most modern histories of mankind begin with the word evolution. There's something slow and soothing and gradual about the word, and even about the idea. As a matter of fact, it is not, touching these primary things, a very practical word or a very profitable idea. Nobody can imagine how nothing could turn into something. Nobody can get an inch nearer to it by explaining how something could turn into something else. It is really far more logical to start by saying, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Even if you only mean, in the beginning, some unthinkable power began some unthinkable process. For God is by, it, for God is by its nature a name of mystery. And nobody ever supposed that man could imagine how a world was created any more than he could create one. But evolution really is mistaken for explanation. It has the fatal quality of leaving on many minds the impression that they do not understand it and everything else, just as many of them live under a sort of illusion that they have read The Origin of Species. That's Chesterton's insertion of his humor 
Uh, basically, he's saying a lot of people talk about Darwin's origin of species who've never read it, and so he said this is another one of those illusions. But this notion, I love this, this notion of something smooth and slow, like the ascent of a slope, it is a great part of the illusion. It is an illogicality as well as an illusion, for slowness has really nothing to do with the question. An event is no more intrinsically intelligible or unintelligible because of the pace at which it moves. For a man who does not believe in a miracle, a slow miracle would be just as incredible as a swift one. The Greek witch may have turned sailors into swine with a stroke of a wand, but to see a naval gentleman of our acquaintance looking a little more like a pig every day until he ended with four trotters and a curly tail would not be any more soothing. It might be rather more creepy and uncanny. The medieval wizard may have flown through the air from the top of a tower, but to see an old gentleman walking through the air in a leisurely and lounging manner would still seem to call for some explanation. Yet there runs through all the rationalistic treatment of history this curious and confused idea that difficulty is avoided or even mystery eliminated by dwelling on mere delay or on something deleatory in the process of things. The question here is the false atmosphere of facility and ease given by the mere suggestion of going slow. The sort of comfort that might be given to a nervous old woman traveling for the first time in a motor car. His, one of his nemeses was H.G. Wells, and he said, Mr. H.G. Wells has confessed to being a prophet. And in, and in this manner, he was a prophet at his own expense. It is curious that his first fairy tale was a complete answer to his last book of history. Uh, the Time Machine, that was his book, destroyed in advance all comfortable conclusions found on the mere relativity of time, founded on the mere relativity of time. In that sublime nightmare, the hero saw trees shoot up like green rockets and vegetation spread visibly like green conflagration or the sun shoot across the sky from east to west with the swiftness of a meteor. Yet in his sense, these things were quite as natural when they went swiftly. And in our sense, they are quite as supernatural when they go slowly. The ultimate question is why do they go at all? And anybody who really understands that question will know that it always has been and always will be a religious question. Or at any rate, a philosophical or metaphysical question. And most certainly, he will not think the question answered by some substitution of gradual for abrupt change. Or in other words, by a merely relative question of the same story being spun out or rattled rapidly through, as can be done with any story at a cinema by turning the handle. We can make the movie go fast or slow. Well, <clears throat> miracle and providence are not identical and should not be confused. Uh, so we'll take that up when I come back after Stacy's had a few weeks here. But uh, I wanted to set the table again for us understanding these two choices we have to make. It seems like we're constantly put in that place by God. Choose you this day whom you will serve. 
That's, a, that's the question. What is, what is the truth? Where is the beginning? What are you going to stand on? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of yourself to us that we could never have discovered on our own. Lord, help us to be wise and strong and gentle and gracious. And yet, help us not to be foolish, naive, or uninterested. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.